So if you've ever noticed, there are certain things that are hardwired into us. Winning is one of those things, specifically the desire to win. Everybody wants to be a winner. Nobody wants to be a loser. That starts off very young. You don't have to teach a kid that. Kids just naturally know it's better to be first than it is to be last. In the words of Ricky Bobby, if you're not first, you're last. That's just the way that we are wired. Think of the game Duck, Duck, Goose. I don't know who came up with that game, but basically it's a way of saying if you're fast, if you're a winner, you get around and you're awesome. But if you get caught, we're going to shame you. We're going to put you in the middle, and we're going we're gonna to all say mush. I don't even know what that means. I don't know why we do that other than a way to make slow kids feel bad about themselves. All right. All right, slow kid, get in the middle. We're all going to mush, mush. Shame on you. Run faster next time. My kids, uh, I've got a seven-year-old, I've got a five-year-old, and then, then like a one-and-a-half-year-old. She's just kind of running around, chasing them around. But the five and the seven-year-old, everything is a contest. Everything is a contest, nonstop, nonstop. And most of the time, they're just making up contests. Like, they'll be racing, but they'll declare the race right before they race. Like, Brant will say, let's race to that tree, and then he'll run. Of course, he's two years older, and he's way faster. So he runs, and he gets there first. And so Kinley, she caught on to this, that you could just declare anything that you're going to race to. And so she'd, Brant would be over there, and she'd be right here, and she'd say, let's race to this right here first. And you'd think that Brant could just be like, hey, clearly, clearly that's not a real race. But it bugs him to death. Because in that instance, even though he knows that she cheated, He's the loser, and there's something about being a loser that just deep down inside, we just, we, we don't like it. I had the privilege of coaching a first grade basketball team this year, my son's seventh grade team, and I sent out an email at the beginning of the year to all the parents. I just wanted to set some clear expectations, and so parents, they can get a little edgy in kids' sports. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. I don't know if you've ever been to a sport in event before for seven-year-olds where a parent got thrown out of the gym, but I have, and... We, we need to take it down a notch. So I sent out this preemptive email of just saying, look, here's the goal this year. It's not to win. Our goal is to have fun. Our, our goal is to teach each kid the basics of basketball. Uh, we're going to, it's not that we're not going to try to win. That's part of the point of the game. But, but that's not the main focal point. And so we had this really good team. We won our first game, then our second game, then our third game, then our fourth game, then our fifth game, then our sixth game. There's seven games on the year. And I've never in my entire life gone undefeated an entire season. <laughs> And so that last week, I'm, I'm sitting there with the kids. I'm like, guys, hey, last game, no pressure. We're just going to go out and we're going to have fun and try and do the, the basics and play the right way. But don't blow this for me, all right? We are going to have an undefeated season. And mainly because of coaching, they won the seventh game and we went undefeated. It had nothing to do with coaching. But, but there's something about winning that we really like. Understanding that... All of human history is pretty much that same way. People like to win. They don't like to lose. There are certain things culturally that we look at as kind of this, this social capital, that your standing is dictated by certain things. And <coughs> even though you put it into different lights, it, it basically is that same type of thing. There's certain things that culturally we say, okay, if you're doing these things right, then you are a winner, and we're going to view you as a winner. And if you're not doing these things right, then we're not going to view you as a winner. Maybe we'll even view you as a loser. Uh, for the last few weeks, we've been looking at a story that Jesus told, a parable 
called the prodigal son. And we're going to look at it again today. But I want to try and look through the cultural eyes of how someone during that first century would have seen the story playing out. What they would have been thinking, what they would have been seeing. If you've got a Bible, open up there to Luke chapter 15. And while you're turning there, I want to talk about honor and shame. Uh, that was the social currency at the time of Jesus in the first century. So everything culturally that they were, their lives revolved around was either something that was good, was honorable. You would do things in the culture, in the society, in the community that would bring you and your family honor. Or you would do things that would bring you shame. And so the goal being this, this giant scale, I want to do more honorable things than shameful things. And some of that is just common sense. Th think about war. In war, there are certain things that are honorable with war. So if you have a, a bunch of warriors and they're going to battle, you want them to charge into battle. You don't want them to turn and run away. And so the honorable way to fight would be to be somebody that's at the front of the lines, charging straight in, putting forth full effort. Whereas if someone were to turn and run away, that's considered shameful. So society would do certain things where they'd say, okay, that's an honorable attribute. We're going to recognize you. We're going to raise up your stature because of the good things that you did. Or vice versa, they'd say, no, that's a shameful thing. You're going to be pushed down in our community. You've brought shame on your family because of the actions in your life. Uh, there is a New Testament scholar named David De Silva. He says this about it. He says, if honor signifies respect for being the kind of person and doing the kinds of things the group values, shame signifies, in the first instance, being seen as less than valuable because one has behaved in ways that run contrary to the values of the group. Uh, th this is clear in Scripture, a couple of verses. In Psalm 62, verse 7, it says this, my salvation and my honor... Depend on God. He is my mighty rock and my refuge. First Peter chapter 2, verse 6 says, For it is contained in Scripture, Look, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. And so it's with this context of honor and shame that you've got to be looking at the lens specifically of this story. All the New Testament has this throughout it. But this story, it's really important to comprehend everything that's going on. Now, when Jesus comes, he does something that kind of upsets the apple cart. All of his teachings have this similar pattern where they turn things upside down. The whole Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, he says, you have heard it said this, but I am telling you this. And so in that culture where there were certain honorable things that people did, and there were certain shameful things that people did. Jesus even flipped that sometimes upside down. Like it was considered honorable to hang out with only certain righteous people and stay away from shameful people. But Jesus, who was culturally seen as this honorable person, is all of a sudden hanging out with shameful people. And it kind of starts to rub some people the wrong way. It starts to ruffle some feathers. And so he would use these parables. And here's the thing about parables. I think one of the dangers in our culture is that they become commonplace. Like we've heard these parables before. And so we just kind of jump to the conclusion. And we miss how difficult it would have been hearing at the time. These are those stories that have this hook in them that they're making the audience feel uncomfortable. Jesus intentionally pushing against what culture was saying was okay. And say, no, I'm telling you that what you think and what you view 
of reality is totally distorted and totally wrong. Instead, I'm going to try and tell you how God views your world and your reality. So look in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. That was considered shameful. It bugs them. Why? If this guy is a rabbi, if he's a teacher, he clearly understands Scripture. He's doing amazing things. But the thing that we can't just get past, the thing that we can't get over, is that he's hanging out with a bunch of shameful people. Now, it's interesting to know they always take tax collectors and they stick them as this separate category. Like, you, you think that if they don't like tax collectors, they could just lump them in as sinners. But notice there it says tax collectors and sinners. Like two different categories. Here's why. Uh, one of our early church fathers, um, Chrysostom, in 380 AD, he wrote this. He says, the tax gatherer is the personification of licensed violence, of legal sin, and of special greed. They were loathed in every way. Synagogues would not accept their alms. Their testimony was not received in Jewish courts. They were held to be worse than the heathen. So tax collector... It wasn't just like, okay, that's, that's not a really great profession. It was like, okay, there are sinners, and then above that in the realm of despicable people are tax collectors. And so it's one thing that Jesus is hanging out with a bunch of sinners, but he's also hanging out with tax collectors. Matthew, one of his disciples, was in his previous profession a tax collector. And so Jesus, knowing that they're grumbling about this specific thing, tells these three parables. It tells this first one about the shepherd that has 100 sheep and one of them gets lost. And the shepherd leaves the 99 to go search after the one, brings back the one, and then there's this big party. And then secondly, there's this woman and she's got this coin that she loses. It's an ornamental coin. She has 10. She loses one. She searches and searches and searches and she finally finds it. Once she finds it, she has this big party, this big celebration. And then he goes into the prodigal son. Now, as a side note on the prodigal son, that word prodigal, we're going to see later on in the story that there's this one moment where it says that he had loose living. That's actually what the word prodigal means. Sometimes I think culturally because we so associate that word with this story, people tend to think the word prodigal means lost. But the word prodigal actually means uh, something lavish, something uh, that is just kind of crazy, something that is reckless. And it's characterized by this this reckless spending that he does. Uh, Look in Luke chapter 15, skip down to verse 11. This is Jesus talking. It says, and he said to them, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So pause for a second and understand through the context of honor and shame, like you and I hear that and it's like, I mean, maybe he's it's probably not the nicest thing to tell your parents, hey, can you give my, me my inheritance early? But in the first century, like when he would have said this, the audience would have had this gasp, like I cannot believe this guy. Like he has just gone to very shameful levels. Because essentially what he's telling his dad is, dad, I wish you were just dead already. I mean, that's basically the phrase that is coming out of his mouth. Now, the expectation here. If you're in the first century, the expectation if a son were to say something shameful like that to his father would be that not only would the father reject it, that he would have an obligation to beat the son. 
Like, like he would just smack him and then maybe take him out back, beat him up a little bit, bring him back. And just to show the community, I've done the honorable thing. I've put him back in his place. We're okay here. That's the expectation of what the response from the father should be. But look what happens. It says, so talking about the father, he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. There's where we get that word prodigal from. And now, I understand in the first century, especially for, for Jews, inheritance was this thing that, that meant a whole lot more than what we think of. Inheritance had to do with the land. That all the way back to Abraham, God promises him the promised land. And then you see throughout the Old Testament, when, when God's talking to Joshua and talking to Moses, that you see him talking about inheriting the land that God has for you. And so he's inheriting this land. And what does the son immediately do with that land? He goes and sells it. And then he takes the money and he gets out of town. So he's already done something really, really shameful in terms of his interaction with his dad. And now he takes it to a further degree and does something even more shameful. And that is he squanders the land. He squanders his inheritance by selling it off and then spending it all. Verse 14. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine, and he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. So he hits rock bottom. Uh, this is one of those texts that, that in church we like to really kind of explain and walk out because we've all seen somebody that's been there. We've seen somebody that starts to make poor choices. And then those poor choices lead in a certain direction. Sometimes it's gradual. Sometimes it's drastic. But the result of choice after choice after choice, maybe sometimes it's not even their fault. Maybe something happened and it, and it derailed their life. But then because of that thing, it caused them to go down this path and this road. And we look at people and we say, oh, what could have been? They had just such great potential. But look at where they are. And it becomes one of those stories that, that really just, it breaks your heart. You see someone with potential and talent at the very, very rock bottom. And for a Jew to be with pigs, I mean, he's really trying, Jesus to his audience is trying to press every button he can to show just how destitute his life has become. Now, you and I, we hear that and we have a little bit of compassion. That first century crowd, they would have not had compassion. They would have been like, yes, and this is the end of the story. That's why you should obey your dad. All right, kids, you hear that? Now, like that in their mind was the parable. A son disowns his dad, goes and wastes all the money. He ends up with the pigs. End of story, make better choices in life. Fortunately for us, that's not where the story ends. Look in verse 17. It says, talking about the son, but when he came to his senses. Have you ever had any of those moments in your life? Those moments when you're doing something you know you shouldn't be doing. You're in a spot in life where you just shouldn't be. And all of a sudden, you come to your senses. 
He said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Here's his idea. He realizes he's at rock bottom. He thinks he's about to die. He's starving. He says, my dad's servants live better than this. And then he has this concept, this idea that I will go back and try and repay what I owe. I wasted my dad's money, so I'll go become a servant. He recognizes that culturally, he's no longer a son. He's cut off. He has so shamed himself and so shamed his family that there is nothing he could ever do to get back to that right relationship of being a son. But in his mind, he's like, maybe if I could just go be a servant, I could slowly repay what my dad gave me. I could pay it all back. That in his mind is what he thinks is going to happen. Now, imagine the audience, this tension building, because in their mind, they're thinking he's about to go back to the dad. And that whooping that the dad should have given the son earlier, it's about to come now. He's going to just see his son. He's going to go beat the tar out of him. Maybe everybody in the community will gather around and they'll all start kicking him too, because that's what is supposed to happen culturally in that day. That... They're thinking about this dad and how they're going to interact with his son and how he should respond. And I think that even in today's culture, we can step outside the story and recognize that it just shows you how hard parenting is. Sometimes the decisions that you have to make in that moment and what's going on, you're never really sure whether you're doing is 100% right or maybe not right. And then to make matters worse, every kid you have is very different than the other kid that you have. So if you have multiple kids, you realize that just because something works really well with one kid doesn't necessarily mean it works really well with the other kid. Clearly, in this story, that's the case. You've got two sons on totally different sides of the map from each other. Our first son, Brant, Brant's just a rule follower. Like, it's easy for him to follow rules. That's what he wants to do. So he's one of those kids that as he was growing up, if I do the countdown thing, like, that, that resonated with him. And so he'd be doing something and say, hey, buddy, it's, it's time to go to bed. And he's ignoring me. He's doing the thing. He's like, hey, buddy, five seconds, five, four. And I mean, immediately he'd, he'd perk up. He'd turn and say, all right, dad, you got me. And he'd walk. Kinley's our second. I figured the countdown thing works with every child. She came along. She got old enough to that age where she'd start ignoring you. And you say, I need you to come do this thing. She'd be ignoring you. I'd say, all right, Kinley girl, five seconds, five, four, no response whatsoever, three, Hey, I'm getting serious now. We're down to two. We're down to one. I'll give you a, another half second. I, maybe you didn't. Five, four, nothing. I mean, nothing. She just totally ignores you. So it rocked my world a little bit because it was like, okay, that doesn't work. I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with her exactly when she doesn't do the countdown thing. I remember one time uh, my wife was having this conversation with them about cleaning up all their toys. And she said, so I'm going to set a timer. And at the end of that timer, all the toys that you haven't cleaned up, they're going to go into to mommy's closet. And then you won't be able to play with them for the next week because I'm the one that's going to have to spend all my energy cleaning up your toys. And so as a consequence, you're not going to be able to play with those things. So Brant, immediately, he hops up on the couch. He's cleaning up his stuff. He's like, I don't want mom's closet to eat up all my toys. Kinley looks at her stuff. She's like, okay. And she walks right by it. And, and Lauren's like, hey, the timer's ticking. Tick, 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 tick. And, and Kinley, I kid you not, she looks at her. My wife, her mom, and she says, I don't want to play with those toys anyway. 
And so my wife takes all the toys, they go into the closet, and all week long she went out of her way to say, Daddy, you know my little doll that I used to love and play with? Right now it's in Mommy's closet, and I don't miss it at all. And she just walked on. Like, I, I don't, the, the other night, this is like a week ago, at dinner, I, I'm trying to get her to eat the vegetables and the meat. She always wants snacks, always wants snacks. And it translated as stuff that's unhealthy. Sometimes it's kind of healthy, it's like yogurt, it's like a middle ground, you know. Uh, but she always just wants a snack, so she, she has a hard time sometimes eating dinner. Everybody else eats, she's just sitting there playing with her food, she likes to talk. And so the other night at dinner, it's like, hey, sweetie, we are not getting up from the table until you finish the chicken nuggets. It wasn't even like crazy. I mean, chicken nuggets, chicken nuggets and the broccoli, all right? And she's like, nope. And so I said, all right. And so I got out a book. Brant finished his meal. The baby finished the meal. Lauren finished the meal. They're all off. I literally got out a book and started reading a book for 45 minutes <laughs> because the only person more stubborn than my child at my house is me. I'm like, all right. You want to play that game? I'll go all day with you. All right, let's just do this. So I'm reading a book, and she's sitting there. She's not even doing anything. She's just staring at her plate. She's looking over at me occasionally, and she'd kind of hit it over here and there. Randomly, she'd go, Daddy, I love you. <laughs> I just ignored her. I was just like, I'm not, I'm not giving in to that. But after 45 minutes, with, out of the corner of my eye, she starts eating that broccoli. What? Dad, dad victory. And all that is to say, sometimes discipline and parenting is this really, really tricky thing. You're, you're just not sure what you're supposed to do. And so this is one of those moments where all the audience, their expectation is one thing. Discipline the man. That's what the son deserves. That's what he should get. Look in Luke 15, verse 20. It says, so he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. What he says right there, that's culturally what the expectation is. He's not exaggerating when he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That was fact. That was truth. He had so shamed himself that he was now cut off. Uh, the Jews, they had this thing called uh, the kazuzah, which was a ceremony, which meant literally to be cut off. Where if they saw someone who had squandered uh, the, the land of Israel like he had done specifically to to. Uh, Gentiles, that they would come and they'd have this ceremony and they'd basically shame him. For the rest of his life, he was considered cut off from his family, cut off from the community. He didn't deserve any of that. But then something radical happens. Something that you and I just take for granted, but I'm telling you, in the first century, people would have been stunned. They would have been shocked. They wouldn't have been able to comprehend what is going on right here because the father does something that he's not supposed to do. He ran. Uh, listen to how uh, Kenneth Bailey, who's a scholar of Middle Eastern culture, listen to how he describes it. He says, in the Near East, for an elderly gentleman to run was disgraceful. He often had long flowing robes, and running would require him to roll up his robes, allowing people to see his naked legs. That would be humiliating. It would be outlandish behavior. The son is walking into town, and he's probably rehearsing that speech that he'd said over and over and over again. 
He's probably rehearsing that moment when he sees his dad of, of falling to his knees and just trying to fall on the sword and say, Dad, I'm so sorry, I, I messed up. He knows that the whole town is going to shame him. He's decided that the shame of the crowd is a better alternative than dying with the pigs. And so he's walking into shame. He's walking into town recognizing that everyone is going to be there to see him and hate him. And then the one thing that he didn't expect was his dad who comes running. And now understand what's happened. It gets flipped upside down. The shame that the son deserves is still being inflicted on somebody. But instead of the son taking the shame, who takes it? The dad. The dad does something that culturally was completely shameful. The dad becomes a distraction so that the whole town, instead of looking at the son, is looking at the dad and saying, why is he doing that? I can't believe that he would do that, that he would so shame himself as a man to, to both run and to expose his ankles. Why would he do that? But at the end of the day, here's what the father cared about. The father didn't care about honor in the eyes of his community. He didn't care about his possessions. He cared about his relationship with the son. And he was willing to endure the shame that the son deserved in order to reconnect his relationship with his son. What did the son deserve? Shame. That's what the son deserved, but instead, what did the son receive? Honor. Contrary to that, what did the father deserve? He deserved honor. He was an honorable person in the community, but instead, what does he receive? He chooses to receive shame. It goes on to say this in verse 22, it says, But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put on a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf, kill it, let us eat and celebrate. For his son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. you got to understand that the father was willing to endure anything for the relationship with his son. The distinctive in Christianity if you compare it to any other religion that exists out there, the one distinctive is grace. You see, the son had the same mindset that every other religion has, and that is I've got to earn my way back. I've got to earn forgiveness. Then I've got to do, do enough good deeds, do enough things, go through enough rituals, and by my own merit I can eventually get there. I can eventually pay off this debt that I have. But what Scripture is clear about, is that the debt that you and I have is too great for us to ever repay. We are too shameful. We're too disconnected. We owe too much. But what God does is he runs. And maybe you're there and you're thinking, well, God's never ran after me before. He absolutely did. That the cross is a picture of God running after you and running after me. Full speed taking on the shame that I deserve, that you deserve, taking on the sins of the world. That God did something that nobody expected him to do. That because God valued the relationship with us more than the risk of pain and shame of the cross, he was willing to endure all those things. 
Here's a question for us. What is it that I deserve? I deserve shame. And yet here is what is offered. Honor. A right relationship with God. It's this beautiful, beautiful thing. Here's my, my challenge to you in the room. Maybe you're someone in the room that you resonate with the prodigal son. You resonate with someone that has run away, that, that maybe it was one bad choice or maybe it was a multitude of bad choices, but somewhere in life you got off track, that you know right now that you are not in right standing relationship with God. Here's what the prodigal son did wrong. The prodigal son cared more about his dad's stuff, more about the possessions than he cared about his relationship with his dad. And it takes him going to absolute rock bottom in his life before he recognizes how much he missed the relationship with the father. And then when he heads back in, hey, can you just imagine in the son's mind, he's expecting shame. He's expecting most likely his dad's going to reject him. And his dad does what culturally nobody should ever do. He runs. He takes on the shame of the crowd. Why? Because he's demonstrating his love for his son. I can guarantee you that that son for the rest of his life, his relationship with his dad was different. Because for the first time he got it. For the first time he recognized. For the first time he fully comprehended that love that he didn't understand before. Maybe you're here and you're still off in the far country. What did it require for the son to get back? He thought he could earn his way back, but the truth is that was never the case. He had to do two things. He had to first come to his senses. He had to recognize that the way he was living was not worth keep on living that way. That in a culture right now where, where there's certain things that we think are honorable and certain things that we think are shameful, that it's easy for us to constantly be pursuing the things of the world. Because the world, they recognize that. They hold that up. And that's my measuring stick. I think I have shame in my life because I don't have these different things. And here's what the cross tells you. The cross tells you that all the shame in your life, it can be wiped away with right standing relationship with Jesus Christ. But here's what it requires. You have to come to your senses. Recognize that eternal perspective of life. And then here's the second thing that the son did. He came home. He said, I am going back to my father. And when he does that, his life radically changes. Why does the father treat the son the way that he does? Because of grace. Because of God's unconditional love. Here's an amazing quote by a guy named, uh, he's a theologian named Richard Niebuhr. He says, the great Christian revolutions come not by the discovery of something that was not known before. They happen when somebody takes radically something that has always been there. That if we could just truly understand grace, it would revolutionize our lives. It would revolutionize your life if you're far away from God. It would revolutionize my life and your life if you're in a right standing relationship with God. That if we start living lives that exemplify, that personify grace, that Jesus lived differently. He hung out with shameful people. Why? Because he valued them not based off their possessions, not based off their worth. He valued them because God valued them and he saw the image of God in them. 
What if we as Christians started living life that way, full of grace? That you've got people in your life that they don't deserve you treating them nicely. But what if through grace you do that anyway? That's living out the gospel. And if we as a community of believers would do that each and every day, it would revolutionize the world we live in. Not some new idea, but truly living out an old one.